All right, we are in the month of Elul. It's an interesting month. It follows two months in which there was much thought and much soul-searching given to the disasters that have befallen the Jewish people through the years. Like the month of Av, the ninth of Av, in which we remember the destruction of the two temples and we remember all the other awful things that happened that day or at least began on that day that happened to our Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, Tough times. And then those two months are followed by the month of Elul, which is really a time for soul-searching, for repentance, for teshuva, which is the word for repentance. You read Jewish sites and you'll find that they speak of this repentance not as just something that happens, but something that is a process that takes place over a period of time. Hence, the entirety of the month is for this process of making teshuva, of, of, of repenting. Let's remind ourselves what repentance is, shall we? It's not simply saying that we're sorry when we were caught. You know, politicians are real good at saying they're sorry after they've been caught. We need to be better than this. We actually need to repent as soon as we know that we have sinned. We need to have consciences that are capable of recognizing our own wrongdoing and then do something about it. When we haven't loved another as we should. When we haven't been generous with another as we should be. When we haven't been as patient with a family member as we should be. We should be able to recognize the wrong in that and make repentance. Repentance, it's not just saying that we're sorry either as if we don't need to do something about what we did. Repentance is not just that we stop going in the direction of sin and wrongdoing. Repentance means we go back from that direction and we pursue righteousness even harder than we were pursuing wickedness before. See, that's the meaning of teshuva. That's the meaning of making repentance. You know... Some people, they they get it mixed up though. They think that doing the right thing simply means doing one's religious duty. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's not like that. And this is another meaning of repentance. It's that we really draw near to God in full intimacy with Him. Well, I'll tell you, unless you're willing to search your soul... And unless you're willing to really do a a good inventory of where you're at right here in your heart, you remember Yeshua was challenged by some of the religious teachers of His day that His disciples didn't wash their hands or didn't wash their cups or didn't wash whatever in the same way that the rabbis did. And they called Him down for it. And Yeshua said, look, you're missing the point. 
You're looking at something that goes from your mouth into your belly and then is expelled from the body. That is not what makes you unclean. What makes you unclean is what comes from here, what comes from your heart. If you're not willing to do that soul searching, how can you really find true intimacy with God? Well, you can't. You can't. So, Elul is an interesting word. Do you realize that the four letters for Elul actually make an acronym that stands for a verse in the Bible? Song of Solomon 6.3. Song of Solomon 6.3. Which uh, stands for Ani Ledodi Vedodi Li. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. That the very word for this month is an acronym that speaks of that verse in the Song of Solomon. And then I want you to plug in what I just said that an important part of repentance, maybe the most important part, is that we truly draw near to God. Not just that we and ourselves have stopped doing wrong, but that we actually draw near to God into the brightness of His searing light of holiness. Where we're at our most vulnerable and our most naked as His light of righteousness is shown upon us and all that we are and have been, all that we think, all that we do, all that we feel. Because you see, it's at that time that we really find just how far from God we truly are. It is this that John was thinking of when he told the community at Ephesus in Revelation 2, 1-7 to return to their first love. You know what he told them? Now listen, this was a good community. This was a community that did their religious duty. They did all the right things. But there was one thing he held against them. They had forgotten their first love. They had left their first love behind. They did all the right religious things, but it was cold. It was cold because it was distant from God because they had left God who is their first love. They had left Yeshua, the one who had given everything for them. It was them doing good religious works on their own and it was cold, it was self-serving, it was sanctimonious, and it was a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God. And they were doing all the right things, you see. This is the point, to draw near to God and to stay near to God. So what is it that John told them? He told them to repent, to shuva, and do the deeds they first did. You see, you can do all the right deeds, and yet if they're not done in the heart of Yeshua with love for our fellow man, 
They're not, then they're not the deeds that we first did when we were truly following after our first love and just couldn't let Him go. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. This is what the month of Elul is really about. And this is why it's such important preparation for the high holy days leading up to Yom Kippur. When according to the rabbis, the books are closed. The books are closed. You know, there is a stale date. There is a date that God's going to return. That Yeshua is going to return to us. And at that time, it'll be too late. We need to make our decision for Him now and we need to follow after Him now. So this is what Elul is. Preparation for repentance and a return to our first love. And it is with this in mind, with this meaning of the month in mind, that I preach this message today. I'm calling this message the mission. Now, in the framework of Western Christianity, we really have some weaknesses. One of those weaknesses is we look for one strong man to lead the congregation, and the rest of the people essentially come and fill the pews, throw a little bit of money into the offering plate, and they leave having done their religious duty. They're not really expected to do more and they're not called to do more. But this is not the biblical model. No. The biblical model is that everybody in the community has their part to play. Just like every part of the body is important to the functioning of the body. You got that little thing that hangs off the uh, end of your colon that's called the appendix. Now, doctors have puzzled what this organ is for. They haven't been exactly sure. What they think it is for now is that it's actually part of the immune system of the body to help the body to filter certain waste products that the body doesn't become sick from them. Because if these waste products build up too much in the body, they become toxic to the body. Now, it's a little useless appendage, it would seem, because it just kind of hangs there and doesn't seem to do anything. And yet it's got its importance. This little piece of the body that doctors do snip away if it becomes diseased, and people do just fine without an appendix, is still important to the body. Just like everyone that is in this congregation is important to the working of this congregation, if you understand correctly what it means to be part of a community of God. Every person here is critical to us succeeding. Every person. Every person here should be a disciple of Yeshua, making other disciples. 
There isn't a single person here who should use the excuse, well, I'm not trying to do that, so I can't. Well, if you're not trained for it, it's your fault because you've got the Bible and you can read as well as anyone. And by reading, you learn and you go and do exactly what Yeshua did. And that was to make disciples. Yeshua told his disciples at one time, I must be about my father's business. What was his father's business? To see souls saved and to see disciples made. That was his business. And that's exactly what our business should be. And if it's not, we have a problem. And so I want to take uh, my message today uh, loosely from Jonah chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 1. And then we'll talk just a little bit about the rest of the story. We read, uh, starting in Jonah 1.1, Now the word of Adonai came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Rise, go to the great city of Nineveh, and call out to her, for their evil has risen before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Adonai. He went down to Jaffa and found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fee and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of Adonai. You know, people try to run from God all the time. It's not a very smart thing to do because God is not exactly uh, hindered from getting to us wherever we would pretend to go to be able to hide from Him. Adam and Eve found that out in the garden very early on, didn't they? Well, so also did Jonah find that out because, well, God found him in that ship on its way to Tarshish. Then Adonai hurled a forceful wind into the sea, and there was such a mighty storm on the sea that the ship was about to shatter. So the sailors were afraid and cried out, each man to his own God. These were people who didn't know the Lord God for the most part. They were Phoenician sailors. They spent their time on the oceans. They were superstitious. They were good sailors. They were good at what they did. But they didn't understand God. They didn't understand the nature of God. They didn't understand obedience to God. Heavens, the gods that they followed seemed just as fallible as mankind. Then they cast the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone out down into the lowest part of the ship to lay down and fell fast asleep. So the chief sailor came near to him and said to him, What? Are you sleeping? Get up! Call out to your God! Perhaps the gods will consider us, so we will not perish. Then each man said to his companion, Come, let's cast lots, so we may know of whom this evil is happening to us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Wow. So God was going to even allow these pagan sailors to find out one of His people who was being disobedient to Him. 
How often have we had it within Western expressions of the faith that some great man of God, maybe they actually were at one point, but some great man of God has found out, has been found out, by someone in the world. And it's damaged the reputation of all of us who call on the name of Yeshua. Well, God was going to let him be found out. If it was by these pagan sailors he was found out, God was perfectly okay with that. He sat it up, so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account is this evil happening to us? What is your profession, and where did you come from? What is your land, and from what nation are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Adonai, God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became afraid with an overwhelming fear, and they said to him, What have you done? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of Adonai, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do? To you, so the sea will become calm for us. For the storm was raging on. Jonah said, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he said to them. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm is upon you. Hmm. Wow. You see, when we run from God, we not only hurt ourselves, we can hurt others as well. Jonah, by his unwillingness to follow after God and to listen to what God was saying, had led to the loss of a very large cargo that had been thrown overboard to lighten the load of the ship because it was taking on so much water with its holds full. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to the land, but they could not because the sea kept raging against them. God was not going to allow Jonah to get away unscathed or to get away easily. And he wasn't going to let these men, out of the goodness of their hearts, try to save Jonah from Jonah's sin. Jonah was going to have to pay a price. He was going to have to experience a certain amount of fear. He was going to have to experience a certain amount of wrath. And he did. Look what happened. So they cried to Adonai and said, Please, Adonai. Wow, look. These pagan men who had been praying to their gods before, now they're praying to Jonah's God. This ought to tell you something. This is exactly where we need to be every day, ministering the good news of our Lord and Savior Yeshua to a world that's desperately in need for Him. Not being afraid to do so, not being embarrassed to do so, but in boldness doing so. 
So they cried to Adonai and said, Please, Adonai, don't let us perish on account of the soul of this man and don't put innocent blood on us. There was nothing innocent about Jonah, was there? He knew what he was doing. He was doing it in full daylight. For you, Adonai, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stilled from its raging. Then the men became afraid with an overwhelming fear of Adonai, and they offered a sacrifice to him and made vows. Now Adonai prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Story of Jonah. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, this great city that was about a three days' journey to walk across, according to Scripture. Good sized city, had large borders. And Jonah was supposed to go there. And he was supposed to preach a message of repentance. And he obviously didn't want to do that. Now maybe we can kind of understand just a little bit. Assyria was to become, Assyria being the empire of which Nineveh was the capital, was soon to become Israel's most implacable foe. In fact, eventually Assyria would destroy Israel. They would eventually take the tribes to the east of the Jordan River, and then, at, then later on they would take the rest of, of the country to include the capital city of Samaria. And Israel, the northern kingdom, would be no more at the hand of the Assyrians. And so, being a prophet, do you think it's possible that Jonah had already foreseen this? think it's possible. Why not? This is what prophets do to some degree. They do see the future. They foresee what is going to come. And I think that he might have foreseen what was going to come. And he didn't want to do anything that might help these people. You remember later on that he answered God when God asked him why he had no concern for Nineveh, that he actually answered him. He said, I didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance because I knew that when I did, you'd just make me look like a fool and they'd repent and nothing would happen. So I didn't want to do it. Can a prophet of God be selfish? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, prophet of God can be darn selfish. And that's basically what Jonah's problem was. That and being self-centered, thinking about himself, not thinking about others and the need of others. Now I'll tell you why this is important. And it really arises somewhat out of the truth of Zach's message about six weeks ago or so, which was a wonderful prophetic utterance that told us about what it's like to be in a nation that is failing. You know how when a nation is failing, it seems like it goes really slow at first. 
this happens and then this happens and then a long time later maybe this happens. But as you really start getting to the point where we're reaching a critical point, then it's like everything starts happening so quickly. Look, I can't believe what has happened to my nation in my 62 years of life. I really can't. I can't believe it. When I was a little boy, there was still prayer in the schools. Did you know that? When I had just reached my teen years, there was no abortion on demand in the United States. It's only been quite recent that we have normalized perversion as a healthy alternative lifestyle in our country. And the confusion has piled up in every other area. We're spending money like a drunken sailor that we clearly do not have. Our economic programs are working okay for the moment, but do you really consider it to be okay when we don't just have recessions and rebounds, but they're so high and so low and so quickly and packed so tightly together in so few a number of years? This isn't normal, people. It's not normal. And the reason why it's happening is because our nation is very, very sick. We're on the verge of failure. Our nation is dying. And you need to hear that. You see, the job of elders in a congregation is not to make the people feel good about life around them. The job of the elders in the congregation is to prepare the people for the world in which they live. And so today I want to prepare you a little bit for the world in which you live. That you would do well in that world and thrive in that world and do God's will in that world. And then when the time comes when God calls you to go home, you'll be able to go home knowing that you've done what God called you to do. Let me tell you what happens um, in, a, uh, in times like that. When, when it, it's obvious that something is wrong, you can't really put your finger on it fully, but you know something is wrong you know your nation is not functioning correctly. You can see that everything that was tried and true has been cast away. And all of a sudden, we're in the midst of a raging sea, even as Jonah was in the midst of. Jonah rejected God's word to him. He rejected doing what God wanted him to do. And instantly, he's in the middle of this raging sea. This is where our country is in today. We have rejected God and we're in the middle of this raging sea. That's threatening to swamp the boat that we're in. So how do people generally behave in a time like that? Well, it's, it's pretty natural for people to try to find an escape. An escape, one way or the other, from what is happening to them. They find... Um, a pleasant 
thought that they think they can plug into Scripture so that they can still say, well, I'm listening to God, but it's, it's really just an escape. It's not going to help them to prepare for what's coming, nor is it going to help them to do what they need to do regarding what's coming. Here in the Western world, we have uh, one particular um, item that Christians have been seeking for many, many, many decades now. And what is that? They're looking to understand the end times and to understand in particular the rapture. Because they think that by understanding this, they're going to be able to escape the hardships that are coming. Now personally, I think it's a great mistake, and I think it's a great deception also. I'm not saying these people are willingly trying to be deceived. They're not. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying, though, that they're looking for an escape rather than listening to the words of Scripture and exactly what God said. So let's look at what God said for a few minutes because I also find it interesting that this idea of this particular escape, this rapture, while it's something that's found in Western aspects of the faith, it's not found in the rest of the world very much. Now, I think there's a reason for that. You see, all over the world, the congregations of God's people have already been suffering great tribulation for 2,000 years now. You think of what happened to the churches in Germany who did not bow to Hitler during World War II and the suffering that they underwent. You think of what is happening to the people of God in the Arab world today when they do not bow to the dictates of Islam. They might have their heads cut off. You think of what has happened to the people of God through all of the years in all of the communist countries around the world and how they suffered and suffered horribly, many dying for their faith. They gave all that they had. And so maybe that's why in most of the world this idea of a rapture really has never taken hold. Because the people in those countries, they know that part of the lot of living as a true servant of Yeshua in this world is that we will suffer. It's only in a country like the United States or Canada, maybe England to a lesser degree, that it seems like this idea of a rapture has really taken hold. And I find that interesting because it's right here in the United States and Canada and England to a lesser degree that we have never really seen true persecution or true suffering for the name of Yeshua. Oh yeah, we might have had someone spit at us at one point or another. We might have an angry guy get in our face when he doesn't like the fact that we're protesting abortion outside of an abortion clinic. We might even have a governor telling us that we can't sing in congregation because somehow our singing in congregation is so much more dangerous when it comes to COVID-19 than rioters out in the streets. 
Boy, doesn't make much sense, does it? But can we really call this persecution? I don't think so. At least not persecution like our brothers and sisters all over the world have truly faced. So it's natural for people to seek escape from fears. In Matthew 24, 7-8 though, Yeshua tells us that nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But all these things are only the beginning of birth pangs. Wow. You know, Paul used similar language in Romans chapter 8 and 18 through 23 where we read, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the coming glory to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it, that is God who subjected the Uh, creation to futility in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans together and suffers birth pains until now and not only creation but even we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Ruach grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption, the redemption of our body. So once again, birth pains. So here I am with my sweet, gentle wife, and we're in the hospital. And I'm standing there by her bedside, and she's holding my hand, and she would begin to have a pain. Yeah, a contraction. And she'd squeeze my hand tighter. And that would go on for a little while, and then it would stop. We'd wait quite a long time, and I'd be talking to her the entire time. And then the next contraction came. And what happened? She squeezed a little bit harder. And then she relaxed again. We waited a time, not as long as the time had been before. And then another contraction came, and, oh yeah, but this time, she was really squeezing. And now she was starting to scream a little bit, too. And then she started talking back to me. She wasn't real happy with this, you understand. And then she relaxed. And then another contraction came a shorter time interval once again and it went that way it got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter the birth pains until finally she was just squeezing my hand to death constantly and it wasn't stopping and I couldn't take my hand away and by now she was just yelling her head off at me constantly And then the happy moment came when Russell was born and she relaxed. And all of a sudden, it seems as if the pain is forgotten as the baby was put to her breast and for the first time she was able to suckle her son. 
birth pangs. Birth pangs. This is what we're in today. Birth pangs. And I as a husband in no way desired to escape the birth pains that my wife was going through. This was a great moment. And I will tell you that the birth pains that we're going through right now that we are experiencing are a good thing because they signal the return of our Lord and Savior. They signal the creation being released from the curse that has been under because of our sin. They signal the setting in order of all things. So yeah, we have birth pains. So what? It's nothing to run from and nothing to escape from. It's something to enter into and embrace and to take your place as one of the servants of Almighty God in this world sent here for just such a time as this. Each one of you was brought here for just such a time as this. This brings us back to our friend Jonah. So Jonah was sent to Assyria by God after an interesting detour, of course, in which he was swallowed by a fish, vomited up on the beach. Boy, can you imagine after three days in the belly of that fish what that man smelled like and what he looked like? And he walks into Nineveh And he starts the first day immediately preaching, repent. (laughs) Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Wow. (laughs) That's basically what he was preaching. Repent because your great city is going to be destroyed is what he said. But I'd rather go with the words that Yeshua used. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jonah began repenting. And before he had even made it to the center of the city, it's just the first day you understand, already the people get the message and they're beginning to repent in sackcloth and ashes. Word is instantly set to the king by way of a courier, and the courier tells the king what's happening, and the king declares that the whole nation must fast. In sackcloth and ashes, leaving their wicked ways, stopping their violence, and who knows, maybe God will have mercy upon us, he said. Very interesting. This was in about 790 BCE, which presumably would be during the reign of Adad-Nirari III, who ruled from 810 to 782 before the Common Era. Now we already talked a little bit about why Jonah was so reticent about going to Nineveh. I think it quite possible that he had already been shown in a vision what Nineveh would eventually do to Israel. Jonah didn't want to have any part of it. Consider that the destruction of Israel only began 50 years later after Jonah's visit to the city. Only 50 years when uh, the Assyrians conquered 
the tribes that were to the east of the Jordan River. And uh, this conquest was completed with the capture of Samaria in 722 BCE, less than 70 years after Jonah's visit. But still, God's concern is not for the fact that when His people suffer punishment when we step out from under God's protection. That's not His concern. That's not His chief concern. He knows when we step out from under His protection that bad things can happen and will happen. It rains on both the godly and the ungodly alike, doesn't it? I mean, bad things happen to good people too, just like bad things happen to bad people. Life on this earth is it can be tough. And we can expect it to be tough. And it's even tougher if we're going against God's will and if we're doing things that are clearly in disobedience to His will. If we're not caring for the poor and the needy. If we're not taking care of the widow and the orphan. If we're not caring for the stranger in our midst. If we're not being faithful to our, the wife of our youth if we're not taking good care of our children being the parents that God has called us to be, if we're not being faithful friends to those that God has given us to be in relationship with, you see, if we're not doing these things, then we're walking in disobedience to God. And disobedience tends to beget disobedience. The more we walk in it, the easier it becomes the next time to do what is disobedient to God. After all, we got away with it before. Maybe we'll get away with it this time. And believe me, after one follows his own way long enough, this is exactly how one begins to think. Got away with it before. Maybe I'll get away with it this time. God was patient with me before. Surely He'll be patient with me now. God is patient. But there is an end date. So Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to minister to the, the people of this great city. He didn't want to see them repent. He wanted to see them destroyed. That's what Jonah wanted. He wanted to see God's judgment poured out on Nineveh. In fact, after he'd gone through the city and walked through it, he went up on a hill and he sat down, built himself a sukkah, and he sat there to watch the show. That's exactly what it says in Scripture. He sat down to watch the show. Let's see what's going to happen to Nineveh. Nineveh didn't disappear, did it? Because the people, beginning with the king, repented and God spared the great city for another period of time in Jonah 4:10 we read but Adonai said to Jonah you have pity on the plant for which you did no labor or make it grow 
that appeared overnight and perished overnight. So Shunadi have pity on Nineveh, the great city that has in it more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, as well as many animals. Hmm. Yeshua says in Matthew 24, 12 through 14, because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. What did Jesus say first though? He said that in the last days the love of many will grow cold because lawlessness will abound. One of the things we must fight against during this time and I'm not saying that the lawlessness that we're seeing is in any way to be accepted. It's not. This is wrong. It is absolutely wrong what is happening in our streets. The rioting, the burning of businesses, the attack on private citizens, armed gangs walking to the streets with air horns and bull horns and waking everyone up at 3 o'clock in the morning and saying, with expletives, get out here. You can't sleep until you come and protest with us. Or people going into restaurants and telling people they have to make the black power sign or else they're not going to be left alone and they will be pestered until they do exactly what the gangs want. This is not right. And I'm not saying we should think it's right. But it's because, Yeshua says, of the rise in violence and the lawlessness that the love of many will grow cold in the last days. We must make sure that we don't become victim to what Satan is doing by our love growing cold. What was it that John corrected the Ephesians for? This was a good community. The community at Ephesus was one of the strong ones. John corrected them because they had forgotten their first love. Times had become tough. All they, they could see was gritting their teeth and holding on. Pushing away anyone that they thought was a threat. We can never be like that, folks. You know, it's a puzzle. Because if we do the right thing, we make ourselves vulnerable and we can be hurt. You understand that, right? If you do the right thing and you love people, 
and you make yourself open to them, then people will sometimes hurt you. But yet, this is exactly what God tells us that we need to be willing to do. Otherwise, there is no way we can minister to these people that are living in sin and darkness. And remember the message of the king of Nineveh to his own people that they needed to turn away from their wicked ways and their violence. And the people did. And Nineveh was a very warlike empire. Very warlike. And yet God said to His prophet Jonah, I want you to go to this warlike people who would kill you for fun as soon as look at you. And I want you to minister to them. Preach that indeed my judgment is about to fall on them. And indeed, when he did, and he went in obedience to God, then even the king of the city understood the message, and he turned and he repented. And he didn't hold on to his wicked ways or the violence of his empire any longer for the rest of his life. And Nineveh was spared, at least for the time being. So, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. I want to remind you of something in Acts 1, 6-8, through 8, some other words of Yeshua because I think they're particular telling for our day. A day in which so many people are seeking escape, and the way they're seeking escape is to find a theology or an eschatology that comforts their souls and tells them that they won't be here for any of the bad stuff that's going to come. This is a mistake anyway. This is a mistake anyways, because there's not a single person sitting in this room, however much you have studied prophecy, that can tell me for sure exactly what's going to happen in the last of the last days. You can't. You can tell me some things. You can, you can read Scripture to me, but you can't tell me exactly what that Scripture means. Because it's apocalyptic in language. And apocalyptic language by its very nature is very difficult to decipher. Very difficult. John knew that, but what else was he going to write? But something that would be apocalyptic in nature. But Yeshua said to his, uh, actually his disciples, uh, they all gathered together as the Lord had called them to. And the first thing, you understand that they've been in Jerusalem and they've been told that they're to go out and meet Yeshua at a certain place and a certain time. And so they get to Him and what is their first question? First question. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? That was their first question. 
Not, Lord, what would you have us do now? Lord, what is our job? Lord, how are we going to do this without you here? No, that wasn't their first question. Their first question was, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel this time? Hey, Lord, just get it done. We're ready for it to be done. We're tired of all the mess. Well, I'll tell you, you know, we could say the same thing today, couldn't we? We're tired of the mess. Lord, just get it done. Get it done. But what was Yeshua's answer to them about that question? It's none of your business, he said. That is not your business. You know what your business is, though? This gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached all over the world. To every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. You're to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's your job. And that's what you need to know. And that's what you need to be about. He was not interested in His disciples being focused on the end times. He was interested in His disciples being focused on the here and now and doing what He had commanded them to do here and now. And this is the way we need to be. We need to be focused on what God has told us to do here and now, which is to go and make disciples, not be wasting our time trying to figure out the end times, which Yeshua says that there's not any man or even an angel that knows the end times. Don't be interested in that. Be interested in the mission that He's given you. And that mission is to go and make disciples. He gave a parable in Matthew 24, 45 through 47 at the end of his pronouncements about things that would happen leading up to the end times. And uh, he, he asked them this question, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whose master finds him so doing when he comes. Amen, I tell you, his master will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Remember Yeshua's words that we should occupy until his return? Now look, nobody likes the idea of hardship. They don't. Nobody likes it. I'll tell you, if anyone's going to be a champion athlete, though, they have to be ready for hardship. It hurts to get ready for the Olympics. It hurts to prepare for a marathon. The marathon itself is a nonstop pain for a great part of the race. The last two miles of a marathon being the absolute worst because every part of your body is screaming for relief by that time, and you can't let your body have that relief. Now, that's just a little thing. It's for a very short period of time, and it's done so that a person can achieve a crown, right? They can achieve some award, a gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal, whatever. 
They can stand up on the podium. If they're the gold medal winner, they can stand up there and they can watch their flag being raised and their national anthem being played. We're talking about something far greater than this, though. We're talking about serving the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who put on human flesh and died for us, gave his life for us, suffered horribly for us, was humiliated horribly for us, so that we could have life, though we deserved death. And so if he was willing to undergo suffering for us, don't you think there might be a place where perhaps we should go through suffering for Him or will go through suffering for Him and that suffering might even have a salvific purpose to it. Most people look at suffering and they just say it's bad. It's all bad. No, it's not. No, it's not. There's good reasons for suffering. Let me give you a couple of reasons for suffering. First, Taking the hardship of suffering due to the gospel demonstrates one faithfulness so that as it says in Hebrews 11.35 of those who refused to be released but they allowed themselves to remain imprisoned for the sake of the gospel that they did so and able to gain a better resurrection. That's exactly what it says in Hebrews 11.35 to gain a better resurrection. Number two, suffering for the gospel bravely and out of love for one's persecutors is, as Paul says in Colossians 1.24, the filling up in our bodies what is still lacking in the suffering of Messiah. For who? For our lost generation that we live in. Look, folks, I'll tell you, Nobody today is going to see Yeshua lifted up on the cross. They're not going to see Him lifted up like that. Because it happened 2,000 years ago. It doesn't happen now. You know what they, they might see? They might see the suffering that we endure on their behalf and for the sake of the gospel out of love for God and love for them. And what does the Shema tell us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole gospel right there. The entirety of the gospel is summed up in those two commandments. And this is exactly what Paul is speaking about. He filled up in his body what was lacking in the sufferings of Messiah. Not that anything lacked in the sufferings of Messiah but each new generation needs to see Yeshua lifted up on that execution stake, dying for them, giving His life for them, that they can have life in place of the death that their actions have earned them. We are the body of Messiah. Why in the world do we think that as the body of Messiah that we're going to escape suffering? We're not. Don't seek to. Third, it is those who have passed through suffering 
who have been strengthened in their faith through that suffering, and who have been sweetened rather than embittered through that suffering, who can best and truly bring healing to the world after the times of trouble end. Look at the story of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom went through absolute horrors in Ravensbrück. She was in such a bad place that she came to understand. Actually, it was her sister Betsy who understood this, but Corey came to understand it with her also. That even the lice were a good thing because it kept the guards away. Thank you, O Lord, this day for the lice that are crawling all over my body. Wow. But it kept the guards away so that they could have their daily Bible study. She was released by a clerical error that I think very well had been arranged by God. And what did she do when she got out? In a nutshell, she made places where the people who had been damaged by the war could be healed from that damage by being in a place of gardens and beauty where they could work with green and growing things and they could bring life rather than experiencing or bringing the death that had been theirs to bring before. She started out in Holland, but do you realize that she was offered a place by the German government just like Betsy had seen a concentration camp. And Corey went and she took and she transformed this concentration camp into a place where the people had, who had been the perpetrators of the crimes against those who were in the concentration camps could be healed from the horrors of what they had inflicted on others. Obviously, her love and the love of her sister Betsy did not grow cold because of what they suffered. Every one of you here knows as well as I do that oftentimes the best person to minister to one who is suffering is someone who has been through precisely what that individual is suffering. A person loses a child to death for whatever reason. Unless you've done the same, do not offer that you can understand how they're feeling. No, you cannot understand how they're feeling because you haven't suffered the same thing that they have suffered. But you know who can understand what they're feeling? Someone who also has lost a child. And has gone through the pain and the agony, walking through it day after day after day after endless day. Suffered through the long nights. Drowning in the tears that just won't go away. You see, that's the person who after they've made it through to the other side, can really minister to another who is going through that. 
Suffering is not necessarily a bad thing. Consider also Revelation 22, 1 through 2. And I'm closing up now. Revelation 22, 1 through 2. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's street. On either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You know, there's many trees that are medicinal in nature. You know where aspirin is synthesized from? The bark of the willow tree. That's right. The bark of the willow tree. That's where aspirin is synthesized from. It's a drug that can be induced from this tree that is useful in any number of ways to include uh, deadening pain. There's other trees that can be used for medicinal purposes also to help with high blood pressure. Any number of things. With some of these trees, it's the eating of the leaves themselves that can lead to um, better health. Now, follow me on this. The leaves of the trees. What did Yeshua tell us in John 15? He said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Now, what comes from branches? Leaves, right? And on some trees, these leaves are actually for healing purposes. They have, they have properties that will help with healing of certain maladies that the body can develop. Should we take the leaves of these trees merely as a tree, like, like maybe this oak tree out here? These two beautiful oak trees that are right here. Or can we actually look at them in a somewhat different way? I mean, there's so much in the book of Revelation that really does need to be looked at somewhat differently than what John truly describes that I wonder. Now, he is... He is the vine. We are the branches. We are the branches. As the branches, we put out the leaves, we put out the grapes that are going to be used to create fine wines. Or they're going to be put on a table as a fruit for dinner or dessert so that people can remain healthy because of the vitamins that they receive from this or because of the healing properties of the vino itself. When we talk about the leaves of these trees, I really want you to look at the leaves of these trees as being yourself. 
The day is going to come, folks, when all of the mess that this world is in will have come to an end. The birth pains will have ended. The baby will have been born. The King of kings and Lord of lords will have returned. And He will very rapidly be setting things right. Now who is it that's really going to bring healing to a world that's been torn apart by war, by hatred, by cruelty, by the malice, the full malice of the enemy of the human soul, Satan himself? except for the people who in faith in God lived out those days, saw them, suffered through them, and yet still stood with God and still maintained their humanity and their sweetness, not allowing their love to grow cold and not growing away from their first love. That's who. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. I really think that is you and I. So to close, don't seek escape, but do prepare. I'm not saying just sit around and don't prepare. Prepare. Prepare in any number of ways. Don't be enamored of the teachers of the last days, please. But rather be focused on the work He has given you, which is to be His witnesses until He returns. Those are His words, not mine. His words. That is our job to be His witnesses until He returns. Not to be occupied with the last times, but to be occupied with doing the work that He has given us. Third, as Yeshua told His first disciples in Matthew 10.28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Don't fear man. Yeah, man can hurt you. That's right. The wrath of man can be really tough. The wrath of man can kill. But Yeshua tells us, don't fear them. Don't fear them. Stay focused on God. and You'll be fine. Finally, you were created for Him, it, we read in Ephesians 2, 8-10, for good deeds. Good deeds, great works, which were prepared for you beforehand. Even before you were born, these good deeds were prepared for you by your Lord and Savior for you to walk in and to do them. Great things that will lead to the changing of this world, that will take the kingdoms of this world and make them the kingdoms of our God and Messiah. Finally, remember what Matthew 16, 18 says as the birth pangs come closer and closer together, the darkness closes in, and it just feels like it's never-ending pain. Remember what Yeshua said, though. He said, upon this rock, I will build my community, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Very interesting language. The gates of hell will not overpower it. You see, we're not fighting this battle on our turf. We're not. We are not fighting this battle on our turf. We're fighting this battle before the gates of hell. 
Satan isn't the invader. We're invading his kingdom. We're invading his kingdom to take precious human souls away from him that he has stolen. Remember, he has come but to steal, kill, and destroy. He is the one who is taking those souls and we have been sent to the gates of hell by our Lord and Savior knowing full well that we may suffer for it to fight the battle on the enemy's ground. And so why should we be surprised that the enemy would shriek and howl and yell and come after us? Because he knows if we're doing what God has called us to do, it is his end. You see, the devil is as capable as any of us to recognize the birth pangs. Our problem is we don't understand what those birth pangs portend. Those birth pains portend our precious one, our Lord and Savior returning for us. All it portends for the devil, though, is the end of his time and the end of his kingdom. And of course, he's going to be furious, gnash his teeth at that. Don't fear him, though! But understand, this is why he's so angry. We're at his gates. We're at his gates. We threaten him continue to threaten him. Because frankly, in the name of Yeshua, he has no power against you whatsoever. Amen? Amen.